Welcome to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge, the fiercely nonpartisan discussion that seeks policy solutions to issues of the day. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. And welcome back to the Common Bridge. It is December the 1st in 2020 as we wind down this calamitous year. Rich, we're going to do something that we've done in the past pre-COVID, and uh, the audience really liked it, so let's do it again. It's called Quick Takes, and we're just going to kind of jump from subject to subject and see if we can get you to uh, respond to them uh, quickly. <laughs> and sometimes you like this, sometimes you don't. Let's start right away. The election's over. The lawsuits are kind of winding down. What do you see that's similar between 2016 and 2020? We now have a new administration. Well, there's great parallels between 2016 and 2020. Again, we can all remember the outrage in 2016 on the results of that election, and that was sustained for four years. And now 2020 election starting off kind of the same way. I think we're going to have a different style of president. I think we need to give Joe Biden a chance. Obviously, the problem is those people, those people that need to be stopped. Okay, I think I see what you're doing here, Rich. Those people, in this case, are what the Biden supporters call the Trump supporters. But I have a feeling that you're saying that those people, in air quotes, are essentially whoever is that you're not agreeing with. It's the other side. Is that correct? It is astonishing that the verbiage is almost the same. Both groups are religiously, fanatically committed to their point of view. The blinders on the ideologuing, the absolute fixation on a specific outcome emanates from the right and from the left, from the Democrats and from the Republicans. So those people, and I'm putting that in air quotes again, are the Biden supporters calling the Trump people who are those people who... Those people that were upsetting our norms, those people that are refilling the swamp. And as we start looking at policies and the common bridge, we're going to be looking at voting integrity and how technologies might be applied. Uh, we are going to be looking at climate change and what are some of the solutions that are possible. We, of course, will wend our way through this pandemic and the vaccines that are arising on the market, as well as all the things that have remained unaddressed because of our broken political system and our abysmal reporting industry. You know, healthcare is still a problem. We don't have consensus on what to do about firearms, student debt wage inequality, wealth disparities, taxes. And the problem are those people. I've been doing a lot of reading and clearly the solution is we need to get rid of those people. Uh, we need to silence those people. We need to undermine their rights. We need to ridicule them and we need to not take their viewpoints into account because those people are the ones that are uh, harming our country and imperiling our future. Okay, so just like in 2016 and 2020, we're seeing a blaming of 
uh, those who were in charge and they're not listening to one another. Is, is that right? You know something, Brian, I do not know any successful person in any field that ever considered themselves always right and always making the right call. The most successful people I know are great listeners. They always want to have their beliefs challenged. They're always open to new data. They're always open to considering another point of view. And yet we now have this great chasm in our society, and it's being fueled by our means of getting information. We've all hopefully by now seen the social dilemma. If you haven't, I think it's must viewing. I'd love to have that filmmaker on the show if we can get him. But if you think the other person is somehow less worthy and subject to ridicule, you're not going to listen to them. And what we've been trying to do on the Common Bridge is to get to policy solutions. But you know something? No policy is going to be strong enough to overcome culture or overcome behavior or overcome a moral code that differs so much. And I've watched on both the right and left swear allegiance to a particular something. You know, we have to listen to science. Oh, except if science goes against my ideology, then we don't listen to that science because that would affect the way that we think. We have to have the rule of law. Well, except if violating the rule of law would help my side. Well, we have to have fair and free elections and elections with integrity. Well, you know, well, but maybe kind of if if it comes out the way we want it, we can fudge a little bit. And you know, this is where our reporting industry could get back to what it's designed to do in our Constitution. Well, then let's shift to the elections. Do you think that the elections were fair this time? I'm amazed that nobody has come out and said, we've absolutely run a clean election with integrity. So do you think they got it wrong? Now, that I'm not saying that the outcome is different. It's just that I'm not hearing anybody step up and say, yeah, we got this thing right. There were no incidences of cheating, fraud, you know, unintentional error, anything like that. Hopefully everybody has seen the data about the massive ballot dumps that have come into several of the states, including some of the swing states. I've been through a bit of that analysis, and I've been looking for it, and no mainstream media has come through and explained, this is why this happened at this time of the night and why the numbers were what they were. All right. And all I'm saying is just explain it to us. Where is the news that's asking those questions? Aren't you the least bit curious about it? So what you're saying is it's not being covered, but it doesn't matter because the winning party doesn't really care. Again, what I hear a lot about is People saying it's those people who are the problem. And I like to ask the question, okay, you just described a certain type of human being, and they're the problem in the country. How many of these people or those people do you know? How many have you personally spoken with and reached this conclusion? And most of the time, I'll get that slack-jawed, wide-eyed, deer-in-the-headlights look like, well, what do you mean? It's like, where are you getting your information? Well, I saw it on television. Really? You saw it 
from the reporting industry or your social media news feed that is spoon feeding you what it is they think you're going to like. And they maybe edited that quote down to something that will cause you to be outraged. And that's how you're drawing your conclusion. So it's affirmation programming instead of news. And if you don't agree with my side, then you're just dumb, right? Absolutely. So are these career professionals or are they unelected bureaucrats? Okay. And it's the same people, the people that are in civil service at the federal level or in a similar classification at you know state municipalities. And someone wants to prove a point, if they want to go counter to the elected person, then that's a career professional. And person that might agree with the person that's in the elected positions as well, they can't be controlled by unelected bureaucrats. You know, it's the same people. And, and watching those positions change. I look at the extrapolations. If you're in business, oh, it's all about profit. And if you want to help through government, then you want to erase all incentive to innovate and work. And you know something? I don't know anybody in business that's 100% about profit. I mean, you have to make a profit, whether it's a not-for-profit entity or a private company or a company with public shareholders, because if you don't, one of the beauties of our system is that you no longer exist. And also that there is a role for government. We've talked about it. You've heard me speak about it. And finding that balance between support versus erasing incentives for good qualities like innovation and thrift. Okay, moving along. Last week, Michael Flynn was pardoned. We did a couple episodes on Michael Flynn. What are your thoughts about the Flynn pardoning? Oh, I think everybody breathed a sigh of relief there. How so? Well, if this was going to go to a full hearing, there is so much that was coming out of the FBI's own files that are inexplicable. They had a memorandum to close the case. They had their own internal documentation saying this is not a Russian agent. Uh, There were linkages to White House meetings under the last days of the Obama administration that were actual interview reports edited. And when you look at what Flynn is alleged to have done, basically asked the Russians, don't make this thing any worse than what it is. It's no different than what we're hearing that you know, Joe Biden and team are talking to lots of other countries and saying, we're the guys coming in and getting acquainted. And I don't think that Biden wants to have that hearing. And it's it goes way beyond this. So during the impeachment, remember, we've got the whistleblower. And I don't know if you recall this, but early on in that reporting, I was driving home late one night and you and I were on the phone. And I said, I don't think there is a whistleblower. I remember exactly when you said that. Yeah. And so isn't anybody like, where's the news that's the least bit curious that we want to know Does this person exist or was this highly legally constructed report alleging misconduct something that emanated in Adam Schiff's office? You know, is Vindman the guy who came in and said, I'm the whistleblower and I don't have any firsthand information. And then he testified and said, I don't have any firsthand information. Where's the basic curiosity around that? I mean, I'd like to know, you, you know, and if the then president was misusing his office. We need to know about that so it doesn't happen again. And if it was 
someone in a congressional majority misusing their position. We need to know about that. Along those lines, uh, Carter Page filed a uh, lawsuit on Friday of last week, and he is going full tilt at the agencies and many of the individuals that invaded his privacy and uh, usurped his rights. Yeah, but how thoroughly will the news media cover that? My guess, it's going to be very, very low in media coverage. And it's going to go away quietly with a settlement at some point. He does point to economic damages that he has suffered. He does point to reputational damages that he has suffered. And again, I don't think this is something that the Biden administration particularly wants to open up. I think they're going to close that down. Okay, so let's switch to protests. Protests seem to have now disappeared from the news cycle. Um, They don't seem to be happening anymore, with the exception of Portland, and they don't really count because Portland just likes to protest. So what are your thoughts? Well, we've seen this pattern before. There have been groups that have been uh, used, and they get used every election cycle. Uh, They got used. They had their day. Uh, They might get thrown a bone here or there, but they've served their purpose, and now those that benefited are moving on. Well, yeah, and I suppose with the winter months coming, that also has an effect on on protesting. That that it does, and a little plug for our Mayor Duggan of Detroit, who was on Face the Nation. First of all, great mayor, great administrator, and a guy that's doing a great job getting the city turned around. And it was interesting that the moderator was trying to get him to say that the hospitals were being overwhelmed. And he said, no, we're we're in good shape inside the city. So I can't speak to the suburbs, but, you know, we we think we're ready and we're ready to uh, give out vaccines and the like uh, up to 5,000 a day. It just it's just like competence that, you know, he's got a handle on things. He knows where things are. He's not the flashiest guy in the world, but he's just getting yeah. stuff done. And, you know, compare and contrast that with a Portland or a Seattle, where they just can't seem to make the streets safe. You know, that gets lost, Rich, in this crazy year of COVID and protesting. I think Detroit has stood out amazingly well under the direction of Mayor Duggan and Police Chief James Craig. Yeah, you know, all we need is a balmy climate and be the go-to place for the country. <laughs> but we don't, we don't. And maybe a better football team. oh yeah it's been a it's been a painful few days (laughs) okay so moving on the theme that you're trying to put forth i think in this podcast is we need to listen to each other going forward and don't judge each other right look we need to make sure that we are listening to bible passages about you know you can't talk about the splinter in your neighbor's eye without seeing the plank in your own eyes and I do think there's a lot of that. I do think that we have things that are solvable. And that's been the theme of the podcast, The Common Bridge, since the beginning. You just keep telling us that if we talk about it, we could figure this out. I mean, it goes all the way back to the episodes we were having about healthcare. It's a big problem, but we could figure it out. Look, we've spent a lot of time on healthcare on The Common Bridge. Uh, we will continue to come back to that. The conclusions are inescapable. In March, I actually had a session that was entitled, The Healthcare System is Not Designed for a Pandemic. And we had guest after guest reinforcing that. 
all coming from their perspective, and all of us eventually arriving at a set of policy conclusions. Why don't we have that? And basically, you have two opposing camps. You have a camp that says, well, we can't let the government be in the healthcare business. And it's like, hello, that ship has <laughs> sailed. <laughs> that we, it is not a normal market, healthcare services. It's very poorly designed. And we do need to have a foundational level of healthcare services security for everybody. And we're almost there and we're doing it in the most expensive and unwieldy way possible. And it really shows up when we have these public health issues. And then you have others that say, well, we can't allow anybody to be in any kind of for-profit or shareholder-owned entity for healthcare. And I think that argument collapses because people are going to go to a secondary market if they don't agree with the broader program or the one-size-fits-all, as it might be described. Every single country in the world with a centralized payment system has that secondary market. Canadians come to the United States, that's the secondary market for them. And if, like under Bernie Sanders' proposal, where healthcare services would be outlawed to be delivered in anything but from the government, guess what? People are going to go offshore. They're going to go to Mexico. They're going to go to the Caribbean. They're going to go to ships and other kinds of medical tourism. So that market's going to exist. And it means they're not going to have U.S. standards for sanitation, infection control, physician training, quality of equipment, and so on and so forth. And not to mention incentive for research and development or innovation at all. Yeah. And that's, that's what the private market's for. It's to put risk capital up. The capital's lost when a business, a service, a product doesn't succeed. It's cleaned away through the forces of capitalism. And when it becomes standardized, then it could be incorporated into a broader system, a broader market. So to be sure, if Enterprise A develops a cure for a particular disease and it's proven, then that can go into the public system without it being the risk capital. The, the problem that you have with the public system as an innovator is they don't know when to stop. They, they, you know, they just keep funding something because it sounds good. And with the private market, if it's not an investable idea, it's not going to uh, happen. And look, this is the same conversation that we need to be having about everything. So we've talked about firearms and the number of firearms purchased and registered during 2020 is uh, set a new record. Yet you don't hear a corresponding change, except in cities that have pushed their police forces to the sidelines. You don't see a corresponding increase in gun violence. And I think we all need to agree that we need to keep firearms out of the hands of people that shouldn't have them. I just finished a book and I'd recommend it called Why Meadow Died. This is about the Parkland shooting. And it's crystal clear that the individual that did the killing was a very, very troubled person basically his whole life. And it was no surprise that he did this mass murder. And we can all agree, let's keep firearms away from people like that. All right, Rich, let's switch gears again here on these quick takes. Let's talk about employment, or specifically wages. 
there's a lot of signs around saying for hire, and I imagine that employers are going to have to start paying their employees more in order to fill those positions. Uh, is it a matter of wage equality or inequality, or how do you see this? Well, that's two different questions. So first of all, um, if we are going to have a living wage as a national policy, that wage needs to get up into the area of 22 to $25 an hour to really make it meaningful where we have less stress and strain on people. And frankly, I think it's a great objective to say if you're working full-time at an honest job that you can afford dignified standard of living. In terms of preparation for gaining more income through your wages or through your investment, now you're getting into that broader discussion about rights versus outcomes. So if there is a quality of opportunity, then everybody has a chance for the outcome. Now you're going to hear arguments that say, well, certain groups, it's shown, do not get the same outcomes. And at times you can link that back to an unequal opportunity. But in the cases of migrants, for example, I know many, many migrants who are working here in the United States doing honest work, some of it heavy lifting and long hours, long days and so forth, yet their children are going to college and are looking at jobs with more incomes because they are developing more marketable skills. And that, frankly, is the way it should be, that we've got lots of cases of immigrants coming to the United States or people born not in wealthy circumstances that figure out a way to create something and to increase their standard of living and contribute to society. And that's what we have to be really, really careful about. If we try to create the same outcome, we're going to drag everybody to a very, very low standard. And you know, any student of history of any type would understand that. I totally agree. And so let's do one more quick take before we wrap this up. And it's around college students. A lot of college students, because of COVID, are home right now like they were in the spring. Um, and uh, at 25000 a semester or 50000 a semester, depending on where you're going, probably higher than that, they're home. So there's a big value question that needs to be asked. Is, is this for another time or do you want to touch on that right now? It seems to be something that's going to be screaming soon. I think there's a lot to be discussed about higher education and accessibility, affordability, you know, who's gaining from the outrageous loan sharking that we call student debt, colleges and universities with massive endowments, yet the access for people of lower incomes just isn't there. We need to unwrap all of that. And what I will tell you, Brian, is the advice that I give to young people leaving for college, okay, and say that they're an 18-year-old. I say, look, this is the last time in your life it's all about you. You typically, you don't have a career that you have to attend to. You don't have a mortgage payment. In nearly all the cases, you don't have a spouse or a family that you're supporting. So go and enjoy the campus experience. And while you may go in, let's say, as a business major, you may discover something there in anthropology or oceanography or in biology or anything that's just 
it, it's a signal to you that's what you're meant to do. So don't be afraid to uh, make those changes and to really build yourself up. Um, and, and I think that's what we need to understand is missing from these online courses that all of that experimentation, that openness to ideas, the discussions, the meetings of other people, the extracurricular activities, all that's been removed from the society during this pandemic. I think it's going to make a great study 10 years down the road uh, when these students are you know, 30-ish and they're going to speak to what that experience was like. I know that I just happened to meet a young lady that uh, was attending University of Southern California, very good school, and said she's taking the semester off and working because she doesn't feel that the online experience is worth what her family has to pay for that USC education. That's a real heads up move and, and incredible foresight on her part too. But I think that whole college valuation in the time of COVID is is a is a podcast onto itself. I think, and all the other ramifications of COVID too. I, I know one of the things that we hope to do on the Common Bridge is bring across some futurists and some experts uh, that can talk about what the post-COVID world looks like. We have lots of things that we need to attend to. I think there's going to be some good things that remain. Uh, you know, by way of example, the strain on the environment from commuters that we will find a balance point there with people that do need to commute versus people that can be online two-thirds of their week. I think there's going to be a lot of interesting things to look at in post-COVID America or the world, but I don't know. Do you see any silver linings out there? I think some really, really, really good things will come uh, out of this unless those other people stop it. And it's those people that don't think like these people that are the problem. And if you don't believe it, you can turn on your news, you can read your news reporting, and you can look at that little targeted thing in your news feed that tells you the problems with those people over there. And it's like you've said all along, let's find solutions, let's not fight each other, let's, let's work with each other. Let's hope that those that we elected earlier this month will do a great job on behalf of the country. And certainly, I am going to hope and pray and encourage and support them in that effort. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.